The Palestinian Prime Minister resigns. The idea, perhaps, by them resigning is that there could be a technocratic government that could eventually run things in Gaza. Plus, Israel continues its plan to advance on Rafah. Netanyahu announced plans to convene his cabinet to discuss a push into Rafah that would include evacuating civilians. The United Nations warns more than 600,000 children would be in the path of such an assault. And later, Sweden to join NATO, and tensions are on the rise in the South China Sea. Again. Today is Monday, February 26th, and this is VOA's Flashpoint Global Crises. Good evening, I'm Steve Karish in Washington. On Monday, Palestinian Authority Prime Minister Mohammed Shtaya said he would resign. He says his resignation will allow for the formation of a broad consensus among Palestinians about political arrangements following Israel's war against Hamas in Gaza. The move comes amid growing U.S. pressure on Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas to shake up the Palestinian Authority as international efforts have intensified to stop the fighting in Gaza and begin work on a political structure to govern after the war. But will Shtaya's resignation open the door to the types of reforms that the international community is looking for? I'm joined by VOA's Linda Gradstein in Jerusalem. It remains to be seen what the actual implication is going to be. But the idea, perhaps, by them resigning is that there could be a technocratic government that could eventually run things in Gaza. Um, now, as you know, the, the Palestinians have been split since 2007 with Hamas in control of Gaza and the Palestinian Authority, uh, Mahmoud Abbas's party, in uh, control in the West Bank. So the idea is that it could pave the way for internal Palestinian elections, although that's been tried before and didn't work. Or it could perhaps, uh, you know, lead to those reforms that the international community in Israel says would be necessary before the Palestinian Authority could take over uh, Gaza. But it's a long road. I mean, the fact that the government resigned doesn't mean any of that will happen. Well, what are the reforms that the international community is pushing for, and what are the roadblocks to them? What's making it uh, what's making it so difficult? Well, I think, first of all, uh, they want more transparency about where the international aid that's been given to the Palestinian Authority would go. Uh, the PA uh, is seen as being very corrupt, uh, is seen as not uh, necessarily representing the public, and there's a lot of cronyism and, you know, jobs are given by, you know, privilege and things like that. So I think they'd want to, and they would want to see people with expertise in some of the economic issues, expertise in, you know, reconstructing Gaza, uh, that kind of a government. Now, there has been a Palestinian technocratic government once before, and it didn't really make any progress. So, again, you know, the United States has made it clear that it wants to see a revitalized Palestinian authority in control of Gaza, but Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said that Israel must remain uh, with security control of Gaza and has said that it doesn't want to see the Palestinian Authority having any role. 
And speaking of international pressure, uh, Human Rights Watch released a report today uh, blaming Israel for not taking enough care to protect civilians in Gaza. What's what's been the reaction in Israel to that report? Well, you know, the, the Human Rights Report basically says that the Israeli government is legally bound by the order from the International Court of Justice um, to do more, to um, in, let more humanitarian aid into Gaza and to help, you know, comply. In fact, today, the Israel is supposed to issue a, a response to the, to the International Court of Justice on whether it's done what it's supposed to do. Uh, the report's pretty harsh. It talks about uh, collective punishment that amount to war crimes, the use of starvation of civilians as a weapon of war. In Israel, it's not being taken all that seriously. They see the international community in general and, uh, you know, Human Rights Watch and human rights groups in particular as being anti-Israel, as not taking into account the fact that the war started when Hamas committed a massacre of 1,200 Israelis. So uh, it's being kind of brushed aside here. And we'll leave it there for today. VOA's Linda Gradstein is in Jerusalem. Linda, thanks for your time today. Thank you, Steve. Elsewhere in the conflict, Israel says it's pushing ahead with plans for a ground invasion in the Gaza city of Rafah to root out Hamas militants, even as mediators work on a new ceasefire in the five-month-old war that also calls for the release of more hostages being held by Hamas. VOA's Arash Arabasadi has that story. The Israeli army on Sunday released footage of ground explosions said to be the destruction of militant facilities in the Gaza Strip. VOA cannot independently verify the dates or locations of the video. The fighting continues as negotiators from Israel, Egypt, the United States and Qatar, the Hamas intermediary, held talks in Paris to discuss terms of a deal to free what is likely north of 100 remaining hostages in the Palestinian territory. Negotiations remain fluid. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told CBS News it's not clear whether a ceasefire and hostage deal would materialize from new talks in Qatar. Hamas says Israel has denied its main demands that include an end to the military occupation of Gaza. As thousands joined what's become a weekly rally in Tel Aviv demanding the immediate release of hostages still held by Hamas since its October 7 attack on Israel, Police using water cannons dispersed a counter-rally where protesters held signs blaming Netanyahu for October 7. Netanyahu announced plans to convene his cabinet to discuss a push into Rafah that would include evacuating civilians. The United Nations warns more than 600,000 children would be in the path of such an assault. The southern Palestinian city of Rafah is now home to more than 1.4 million people, more than half of Gaza's population, many of them displaced by months of fighting. The United States says a humanitarian plan should accompany a military one for Rafah. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan speaking Sunday on NBC's Meet the Press as carried on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. We're talking about more than a million people who have been pushed into this small space in Gaza because of military operations elsewhere. It's also the area where all of the humanitarian assistance comes into Gaza to serve all of Gaza. And so we've been clear that we do not believe that an operation, a major military operation, should proceed in Rafah unless there is a clear and executable plan to protect those civilians, to get them to safety, and to feed, clothe, and house them. 
The overcrowding in Rafa strains a healthcare system already on the brink, with as many as four newborn babies sharing one incubator. Arash Arabasadi, VOA News. <laughs> You're listening to Flashpoint Global Crises from the Voice of America. I'm Steve Karish in Washington. It's looking like everything is in place for Sweden to join NATO. We'll have that story in a few minutes. First, though, to Ukraine. The urgency of providing Ukraine with weapons it needs to stop Russian military advances was again underscored on Sunday, both in Europe and the United States. At the same time, calls for stopping the human suffering and efforts to achieve a peaceful resolution to the conflict were also brought to the forefront. VOA's Veronica Balderas Iglesias has the details. A railway station in Ukraine's Donetsk region was inflamed Sunday after reportedly being hit by a Russian-guided bomb. Images also surfaced of a Russian military leader scouting the town of Avdivka, which was taken from Ukrainian control on February 17. Although Ukraine's will is still strong, the resistance needs weapons and fast, warned the country's Minister of Defense, Rustem Umerov. In the mathematics of war, we look to the enemy. Their economy is almost two trillion. So basically, whatever committed that doesn't come on time, will lose people, will lose territories. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan appeared on ABC's This Week. He urged Mike Johnson, Republican Speaker of the House of Representatives, to bring the currently stalled $61 billion aid bill for Ukraine up for a vote in Congress. Speaker Johnson, if he put this bill on the floor, um, would produce a strong bipartisan majority vote in favor of the aid to Ukraine. We saw that in the Senate. And if we can fill that shortage of bullets, Ukraine will stand up brave and courageous uh, and take the fight to the Russians. Sullivan's remarks came a day after Ukrainians marked the two-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of their country. I believe that victory is ours. The whole world is supporting us. If Ukraine loses, it turns out that the whole world will lose against one country. The war has already taken a big toll on the psychological well-being of Ukrainian children, warned UNICEF. Many experience elevated levels of anxiety and disengagement in school. Pope Francis called for an ease of the human suffering during Sunday prayers at the Vatican. I plead for that little bit of humanity to be found that will create the conditions for a diplomatic solution in the search for a just and lasting peace. There was a glimmer of hope when Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky spoke during a news conference about two peace summits that could take place in the coming months. I hope the first summit, the inaugural one, will take place as per today's information in the spring. We cannot afford to lose the diplomatic momentum. It will take place in Switzerland. The second summit we would like to take place somewhere else on the European continent. The 
any resulting peace blueprint would be presented to the Russian side, although Zelensky acknowledged there's no guarantee that it will be accepted. Veronica Valderas Iglesias, VOA News, Washington. And Ukrainian troops are forced to pull back as Russia's onslaught pushes ahead in eastern Ukraine. The AP's Karen Chamas has more. Ukrainian troops have pulled out of a village in the east of the country as Russian forces display advantages on the battlefield. The village of Lastochkina was the last setback for Ukrainian troops as they retreated to nearby villages in an attempt to hold the line there. Though not in itself a major loss, abandoning the village illustrates the battlefield challenges that Ukraine is currently facing. The new loss comes as Ukraine's defence minister has complained that half of promised Western military support to Ukraine is failing to arrive on time. He said the delays makes it hard to undertake proper military planning and ultimately costs the lives of soldiers. I'm Karen Chamas. Elsewhere in Eastern Europe, Hungary has approved Sweden's bid to join NATO. The vote in the Hungarian parliament was the last hurdle before the historic step by Sweden, whose neutrality has lasted through two world wars and the simmering conflict of the Cold War. Prime Minister Viktor Orban's previous objections were seemingly resolved during Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson's visit to Budapest on Friday, during which the two countries signed an arms deal. Orban told Parliament on Monday that Swedish-Hungarian defense cooperation and Sweden's accession to NATO would strengthen Hungary's security, and he urged lawmakers to approve it. Elsewhere in Hungarian international relations, while many Western countries have cut economic ties with Russia following its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, Hungary continues to buy billions of dollars of Russian oil and gas. It has also sought to strengthen ties with Beijing, again bucking Western efforts to reduce dependence on China. As Henry Ridgewell reports from Budapest, analysts are saying that Hungary's leader is seeking to exploit global tensions. The Druzba, or Friendship, pipeline brings Russian oil to this refinery on the outskirts of Budapest. The European Union banned Russian oil imports following its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. But Hungary demanded an exemption, claiming it cannot diversify supply and is now Moscow's biggest energy customer in the EU, purchasing $343 million worth in January alone. Russia is also building a new nuclear power plant in Hungary. Kyiv says Russia spends its energy revenue on weapons to kill Ukrainians. But Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban rejects calls to sever economic ties with Moscow. In his televised annual address last week, Orban claimed that Brussels' strategy for Ukraine has failed spectacularly, not only on the battlefield, where the situation is catastrophic, but also in international politics. We have said in vain that this war is a brotherly war of two Slavic nations and not ours, he said. Orban has criticised EU sanctions on Russia, blocked European aid for Ukraine and delayed ratifying Sweden's accession to NATO. He has made Hungary the outcast of Europe, says analyst Peter Kreko. No one have went so far 
in demolishing democratic institutions, turning against uh, the Western institutional system and cultivating relationships with Russia and China. China is financing a $3.8 billion high-speed railway from Budapest to the Serbian capital Belgrade, a flagship project of its Belt and Road Initiative. Hungary was among the largest global recipients of Chinese investment under the programme in 2022. Miklos Ligeti is from the anti-corruption organisation Transparency International in Hungary. There are arbitrarily designed and, and swiftly adopted regulations by Parliament to prevent any insight or oversight in and over uh, the Russian investment into nuclear power plants or the Chinese investment into uh, the railway uh, track which is uh, uh, being developed from Belgrade to Budapest. These are major investments. In the Hungarian context, these are unprecedented investments. The Hungarian government rejects claims of corruption and says details of the investments were kept secret in order to secure Chinese loans. Hungary's warm relations with Moscow and Beijing are based on a geopolitical assumption, says Kreko. Where there is a, um, a new uh, Cold War type conflict emerges between China and the West. And, and Orban wants to play this bridge role uh, between, uh, uh, between the two. And it's also increasingly about uh, a notion that the Western liberal democratic order is about to collapse and we have to look for new models, being them in Russia, being them in China. It's a stark reversal from Hungary's emergence from communist rule and accession to the EU. This monument marks the 1956 uprising against Soviet rule, which was brutally crushed by Moscow and democratic rule would not return to Hungary until 1989. But now there are concerns about the state of democratic rule in the country and about the strength of influence from Russia. Henry Ridgewell, VOA News, Budapest. New satellite images of the disputed Scarborough Shoal in the South China Sea show a new floating barrier across its entrance near where Philippine ships and Chinese Coast Guard vessels have had frequent run-ins. China's foreign ministry on Monday reiterated its claim of Chinese sovereignty over the area. At a news conference, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning said the area is China's inherent territory. For more on the situation, I'm joined by Raymond Kuo, a senior political scientist with the Rand Corporation. So the Philippines and China have been vying over the Scarborough Shoals uh, since at least the 70s, I believe. And the latest action really occurred in 2014, uh, 2014 or so, um, where the Chinese essentially ejected the uh, Philippine vessels from the area. Now, the reason why they did this is uh, both partly sort of political as well as economic. Politically, it's important for both countries to say, hey, we own this piece of territory. Even though... Uh, an international tribunal said, yeah, none of these uh, none of these pieces of territory can actually be owned. They're not really islands. They're just sort of reefs that submerge under the water. Um, for both countries, this is about their sort of national pride. Uh, economic as well. Uh, there's good fishing in that area. Um, and there's potentially uh, natural gas reserves around the Scarborough Shore, mostly within the South China Sea. So whichever country has control 
of that territory presumably has that, like unfettered access to those natural resources as well. And this latest move by the Chinese to block Philippine access to the area, is this in violation of any international laws or treaties? Yes. So in 2013, the Philippines took China to court, essentially. Um, and that the, the arbitral tribunal that I mentioned earlier, and that tribunal said that, look, these are, you know, these are sub or these are non uh I forget the exact term, but these are not real islands. You can't actually have a claim to it. And so that therefore means that all countries can then get access to those features and fish or engage in commercial activity in and around them. Uh, by China ejecting the uh, the Philippines and preventing them from access, this would be in violation of, of that finding as well as uh, the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea, UNCLOS, which governs these sorts of issues. So why would people elsewhere in the world care? Why is this a big deal internationally? Sure. I think in terms of economics, there's relatively little. Sure, in terms of U.S. competition with China, if, for example, China is able to discover and exploit massive natural gas reserves underneath um, in the in the South China Sea, that would give them a certain degree of energy independence that makes it much harder in terms of U.S.-China competition. But I think the bigger issue is the degree to which um, countries value international laws and norms. Uh, they don't just protect uh, the the particular combatants or, or, or uh, countries in conflict over this, over the South China Sea. They, they govern all countries' activities on the high seas. And I think on top of it, it has uh, conflicts in the South China Sea have the uh, possibility of sparking a larger or wider conflict, military conflict. Um, you have both the Chinese and now increasingly the Philippines engaging in uh, demonstrations to try to say, hey, we actually own this piece of territory. And you can easily imagine how that might lead to a miscalculation or simply spiral out of control. And of course, it's not happening in a vacuum either. Mm -hmm. China is ratcheting up tensions a little farther north uh, in the Taiwan Strait with Taiwan. China is seen as sort of seeking to expand its role in the neighborhood, so to speak. And how does this fit in with their <laughs> larger strategy of that? Sure. You know, you're absolutely right. It's it's a kind of like what we've seen recently seems to be like China trying to settle its territorial disputes in its own favor. So not only in terms of the South China Sea, but also the East China Sea with Japan uh, and also its border with India. Um, it's the way I think about it is this. Um, there's political reasons for the Chinese want to do this, especially as Xi Jinping consolidates more and more control into his own hands and as the Chinese economy slows down. Um, you know, the the Chinese government has typically rested on twin pillars of legitimacy, one, economic growth, two, on uh, nationalism. And as economic growth declines, well, you're going to see a natural swing towards more nationalistic activity, just like this sort of coercion that we see as a way to shore up the CCP's legitimacy. And on top of it, you know, China is just growing more militarily powerful. It might as well make a play for some of these territories and just enforce its own rules and, and, uh, and, territorial claims on other countries in the region. So what happens next? Well, I would imagine that China is probably going to continue um, you know, locking out the Philippine, uh, uh, Philippine vessels. Uh, I think the Philippines has done a pretty decent job of changing the narrative balance. One of the major issues going into this kind of latest flare-up was that you know, for quite a while, China was able to just portray everything that was happening as, oh, this is just us 
you know, regulating our own territorial waters. You don't have to worry about this. Nobody else has to, uh, you know, Europe, you don't need to care. Middle, Middle East, you don't need to care. South America, you don't need to care. This is just us. The Philippines has done a fairly good job recently of publicizing exactly what it is that China does. And then getting sort of international tailwinds, regional tailwinds to say, yeah, we're not, we, we in Vietnam, we in Malaysia, we in Taiwan, don't exactly like what China is doing. Raymond Kuo is a senior political scientist with the nonprofit Rand Corporation. Raymond, thanks for your analysis today. Thanks for having me. And that's going to end today's show. There's more VOA coverage 24 hours a day on our website, voanews.com, and across our social media platforms. On behalf of everyone here at VOA, thanks for listening. Until tomorrow, I'm Steve Karish. Stay up to date with VOA Podcasts. Each weekday, International Edition covers the world's biggest stories, while Flashpoint Iran and Flashpoint Ukraine examine their respective regions in depth every week.